Welcome to the Option 3 Podcast. Today's episode is an exclusive interview with American author and counterculturalist Daniel Pinchbeck. Not only do I see Pinchbeck as continuing the specific tradition of Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, he also writes, researches, and contemplates big ideas for a world that needs them. He has written many books and articles and has shared much of his own spiritual journey in those works. His book, How Soon Is Now, is probably most relevant explicitly in terms of policy which is often my interest. However, the themes of technology, economics, policy, and agriculture arise in much of his work and are prescient to our vulnerable world. He considers sensitive questions in an honest and sober manner without pulling punches, cutting corners, or playing it safe. I originally did the interview in November, and I'm now finally posting it. It's part of the Centrism series, although we actually don't talk a lot about conventional notions of right and left. He has given us many things to consider, both in Conspiranoia and his other texts and articles. Please like and subscribe on all our channels, which is Option 3 Project. If you're interested in making a donation to Option 3, you can go to our website at Option 3 Project, and 3 is the number, option3project.org. So without further ado, here is the interview from November of 2020. Thanks so much for joining. I followed your work on and off at different times, and I went back and started reading 2012, and there are some points of uh, nexus. You have gone much further than I have in terms of uh, experimentation, shamanic and initiatory experimentation. Basically, my first question is, where are you at on your shamanic and initiatory thinking and living? I haven't really been doing a lot of shamanic exploration over the last few years. I sort of dialed it back, although, although now I'm living in Mexico for a while, and um, I'm looking around for shamans that would be really good for me to work with. But it hasn't been my primary focus. Your focus has been where, sir? Well, I was in a relationship for a year uh, with a beautiful Austrian woman, and we recently broke up. So that was part of my focus. Posted two courses online. One was called Building Our Generative Future, which was kind of like trying to offer a positive you know, paradigm shift. With like 20 or 25 other speakers. Then more recently, I just did a course with a uh, philosophy professor around ETs and aliens and UFOs. And then I just published this book, Conspiranoia, that, that you mentioned, which was kind of like trying to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of understanding the, the nuggets of truth and the value in the conspiracy theories that have become so prevalent. What I think is interesting about this book, Conspiranoia is very explicitly about politics about the neo-fascists versus uh, the ne- the technocratic neoliberals. What made you want to go in that direction? Was it just time for you? or 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, how, have you ever looked at the, the book I wrote, How Soon Is Now? No, it was 2017, yeah. And that one is a kind of effort to look at the you know, magnitude of the ecological crisis and propose kind of um, changes, you know, redirections, redesigning you know, that we need to do to avoid, avert catastrophe. So that one was already quite political in a sense. I mean, you know, basically what happens with my books, with my writing is um, I get fixated on a question that I can't understand for myself, something that doesn't make any sense for myself. And that leads me to really want to investigate it. So it's always been, and you know, so it's first of all, it's about my own need to have some kind of clarity or coherence, and, and second of all, once I feel that I'm achieving that, to share it, you know, with other people so that we can up up level our understanding. So with the breaking open the head, my first book, it was written, you know, written in the late '90s. I started psychedelic exploration. I realized that our society really didn't believe that there was any value in psychedelics or in exploring consciousness, and that all these other cultures thought this was like the most important and most valuable activity. So then I was like, wow, that's like a huge dichotomy. Like, why, why do we hate these things and ridicule them? And they're like sacred, you know, sacramental, you know, initiatory experiences for other cultures. And then when I did that book, I learned that, you know, we were going, according to a lot of these indigenous and ancient cultures around the world, we're in this time of epochal transformation that was prophesied in many different ways, in many different cultures, but they really were all pointing towards this time we're now as a shift, you know, it could be a consciousness shift or a dimensional shift or a revelational shift, salvational shift. In a way, some of what I sort of came out of that research was maybe almost too much for me to integrate. So then I kind of went back to thinking about, okay, like if there is going to be some kind of positive change in, in human society and consciousness, it's not like everybody just getting together and saying kumbaya and meditating. We actually would have to change our technical support systems, our social systems, how we get food and water to people, how we take care of the planet, how we organize communities. So that's what led me to How Soon Is Now. And then when How Soon Is Now came out, I was actually very disappointed. Uh, although, you know, it came out 10 years after my previous book. So a lot of things had changed in the publishing world. And, uh, but I was quite disappointed that it didn't really connect. It wasn't like a home run, you know, in the culture. I'd taken a number of years off because I'd started a company called Evolver where I was trying to put the ideas that I developed in 2012, and my other works into practice by building like a global network, global community. Since then, I've kind of been watching things just disintegrate, you know, decline, degrade, spiral out of control. And I basically feel that, you know, that may just be the prophetic unfolding of our situation, that, that humanity is not wise enough to deal with the technology demons that we've unleashed and so on. I felt like with the conspiranoia that as I read all these different things about Bill Gates or about the origin of the virus or about QAnon, I don't know, I just felt this deep sense of unease. Like I felt like there's something here that nobody's understanding properly. What, what is it? Like why are people demonizing Bill Gates? You know, why, why do the QAnoners have this fixation on this idea of like child, you know, pedophilia on a mass scale that there really isn't any record of, you know, you know, in the country, in the U.S., you know, not that child sex trafficking isn't a real problem around the world, but this idea that millions of, you know, Anglo children are being, you know, taken, at, at, you know, in the U.S., it just doesn't really seem to be happening. So I, I just wanted to take some time to sort it out because, yeah, I think often when there's like a deep emotional, intuitive, you know, thing, there's something animating it, there's something behind it. And if we don't really understand what that is, if we're just dismissive of it, then we, you know, then we just let it keeps growing, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like seeing a symptom, but not being able to identify the disease.
Right. That actually brings me to a question that kind of is booked bookends this interview. You know, in, in the bigger picture of what I'm trying to sort of achieve is is a discussion of centrism between the left and the right, and then also between the rational and 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 the intuitive. Basically, I think that the individual, much like you have said, much like others have said, the individual must evolve if the system is going to survive. Is there a sense that uh, full-blown crisis is the only thing that's going to solve, in a sense? That's where I'm increasingly getting to that view, that, that there's no sort of midpoint solutions where we respond in a good way. And I, and I do think COVID is this sort of first chapter in my life. It, it, it strikes a, a different frequency and tenor. It's, and it has impacted the first world, so to speak. And I'm wondering what you think about that notion that basically, to make a long story endless, that public policy will fail. Yeah, I mean, it, um, it, it really looks like, you know, doesn't, it doesn't look very promising. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, even, you know, for instance, in terms of climate change, you know, even, you know, the Paris Accord, which the U.S. then abandoned, was totally flimsy, like only voluntary compliance and, you know, very slow reduction in CO2. We just saw all the forest fires in the West, and I'm in Tulum, which is getting buffeted by tropical storms and earthquakes, uh, hurricanes like never before. I mean, ice is melting at a rate that they wouldn't even have imagined like five, ten years ago. So, yeah, it just feels like we're hitting a lot of tipping points and the earth is going through an ir irreversible transformation uh, into a different steady state. You know, then we know about things like the incredible storage of methane under the Arctic. Temperatures could go up like three degrees Celsius or something. And if that happens, then, you know, most forms of agriculture become totally obsolete. And most of the plants die because they're committed to environments where they can't survive under such a large temp temperature variant. Yeah. I've had enough experiences of the occult and the esoteric and the psychic to really have a conviction that that's real, that maybe all of this, and, you know, our lives in this world is only like a tiny, you know, we're like fleas on, on a, you know, the vast elephant of the universe. Maybe this is really all about some other kind of cosmic cycles or cosmic operations. Then you can argue like the Eastern perspective that it really isn't evolutionary, that it just goes in cycles and the cycles repeat forever. Like if you look at the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, the Bardos, the Bardo, there are the different Bardo states and, you know, sure. when you're in human form, you can self-realize and, and, you know, find non-duality and, and, you know, fully accept that you are, you know, in Nirvana, you know, you're the consciousness that's creating the whole illusion and kind of meld back into the oneness, you know, or there's the sort of Western esoteric, like Rudolf Steiner, Blavatsky, you know, Gurdjieff perspective that somehow there is an evolutionary spiral and, you know, we're, we're gaining new powers that we had to go through this rational technological uh, development because it's just one part of our human evolution. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there is something at the end of it, whether it's in physical form or whether we actually are transcending physical bodies and, and we, you know, develop some other type of existence in the subtle realm that we can't really imagine from this point it would be outside of our language and our understanding, you know, um, those kind of things are things that I think about a lot. It's funny you mentioned Gurdjieff. Um, that's one point. That's, that's the next question. Um, no irony there at all. 
or I guess there is irony, but that is the next question. Not a lot of people know about Gurdjieff, but he clearly has played a role in your thinking. I was in Gurdjieff work and I read every book that there was possible to read on Gurdjieff around 1999. Uh, But in any case, to make a long story short, Gurdjieff said, and I'm paraphrasing, that knowledge is like champagne. If too many people try to enjoy, enjoy it, no one gets drunk. In some sense, what do you think of that in its application in the now? Uh, I think it's an interesting theory. I mean, yeah, I mean, Gurdjieff said that everything is material in a certain sense, and uh, even kind of like, you know, knowledge of, you know, higher realms or ultimate reality or or psychic capacities, there's like a limited uh, quantity of it. So, you know, but but now there's a lot of it lying around. You know, most people aren't even accessing the limited quantity that they could have. It gets pretty esoteric, but, you know, there's an idea that, you know, that the earth and the beings, the spiritual beings who surround the earth, Need, need humanity to create a certain amount, a certain level of energy, uh, which is their nourishment. Just as we eat food and, and, and you know breathe air and drink water, they need a certain energy that comes from our thoughts and feelings. They can either get it from a few, from a small number of humans who have you know reached a higher level of initiatory consciousness or are you know living in prayer and devotion. You know, or it's like a, you know, it's like a mass thing where you have all these people who aren't really producing much. And so that's almost like the idea that we're producing more and more people because we're just, we need to fulfill this like energy need for the, for these other beings. Gurdjieff is a very interesting esoteric thinker. You know, and I don't know what your audience is like, but a lot of them may not be really versed in these types of ideas. They sort of require kind of preparation. Certainly. And I guess the, well, you know, I, I think it's a it's a very useful point of conversation for us. I don't worry about I don't worry about my audience too much, to be frank. Um, it'll it will come when it does, as it needs to. But the, what I'm getting at in that question is the notion that most people will never figure out why they lived. They will never understand why they suffered, and ultimately, that these crises that we're experiencing are in service to planets. And um, they are lawful in that regard. There's nothing that can be really done, uh, in a sense. With, I guess, I guess there's there's a pessimism there. I think, uh, and I've thought about this idea many, many times. It's it's impacted me many, many times that there's a minority and a majority, and the majority is is headed south. And there is a minority of people that could build, in basically intentional communities, and those intentional communities could survive. Um, the the apocalypse, and I don't mean to say that in an inf- the, the, that that term is an inflammatory term, but the challenges of of technology, all the challenges we face. What I've argued in How Soon Is Now, just in the way Murdoch created Fox and has hypnotized many many people into a very degraded reality. I mean, it, you know, could be possible that you know a group of billionaire progressive you know thinkers could join forces and construct a global media social network infrastructure that is designed to rapidly evolve and elevate human consciousness and construct uh, new new uh, ways for people to share value and create community and rapidly prototype and learn the skills we would need to have a sustainable planetary culture, regenerative culture. So, you know, until that's totally no longer in, you know, until it's just smashed to pieces, I'll continue to, to, you know, advocate for that as a better outcome and also a better, better way of thinking. 
But yeah, I mean, I have a lot of friends right now who are setting up lifeboat communities, but I just don't know because if you look at the methane, then the question of oxygen, you know, the ocean is 30% more acidic than it was 40 years ago. So that's leading to the disintegration of the coral reefs and it's changing the life cycle of the plankton, which produce 60% of our oxygen. Tropical forests produce 20% of our oxygen and they're being totally uh, deforested, destroyed around the world. So at a certain point, I think we go into an oxygen, you know, a crisis where we just suffocate, we can't breathe. And, you know, that could happen relatively quickly. And that's something that we see in the records of past extinction events that like, you know, all, all the larger animals go extinct kind of around the same time because the whole atmosphere shifts so quickly. Here's a question that uh, the question of totalitarianism, do you see a certain inevitability of totalitarianism, particularly given the technological sort of parallel sort of parallel projects that seem to give advantage to totalitarianism and also in light of sort of, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Do you see an inevitability of it? I see a high likelihood. I mean, I, I would prefer that we have a mass, as I talked about in Conspiranoia, you know, I, I think that all these movements, the core um, nugget where they, where they overlap or synergize is around this innate revulsion that we're feeling to technocracy, to the rule by the corporate elites, by this direction of technological society, which is really just annihilating everything good, beautiful, and true about the nature of the world. And so I think it's possible that across the political spectrum, there could be a massive uprising, which I think would be a very good thing. The likelihood is that it's, it's you know, extremely difficult. I mean, we know that China decided a number of years ago that it was going to make uh, biowarfare its, you know, a central uh, focus. And they recognize that you could weaponize viruses to attack certain ethnic populations, or you could use nanotechnology to put probes into people's brains and control them from within. And, um, you, know, psycho, uh, you know, China, like the U.S. under Trump, you know, Russia under Putin, is led by a psychopath and, you know, or sociopath. And essentially what happens is because we've created this, you know, pyramidical hierarchical structures of command and control, uh, psychopaths and sociopaths rise to the top of those structures um, because they have no compunction and they have no um, ethic around uh, sacrificing other people or sacrificing nature or sacrificing local communities. You know, just like the CEO of British Petroleum who was able to go on his yachting trip, you know, two days after, you know, they dumped, you know, trillions of tons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico spoiling like an incredible ecosystem so yeah so what, the problem we have is that you know naturally what's rising to the top of our as you know we're primates we're still in this sort of you know monkey mind these psychopaths and sociopaths rise to the top of our hierarchies and now we're giving them you know the tools that of incredible power with this technology which is evolving much more rapidly than our ethical capacities to handle it or, or even understand what it's what it's capable of in Conspiranoia, you talk about psychopathy tests, basically, right? I kind of want to push back. I mean, that seems slightly Orwellian, and I'm wondering, have you given that thought? You know, one problem we have on the, on the progressive, liberal, lefty side is we don't really fight fire with fire. The right wing and the, you know, the authoritarian, you know, extremists, you know, are using every trick in the book and every possible means to uh, hold on to power and to increase their power and to increase their you know, wealth and so on. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think there needs to be an antidote to Fox News where, you know, you'd have to have, you know, wealthy progressives, hopefully psychedelically inspired, come together to build like a global network that, you know, was positive in its focus and its ambiance, but was very, you know, authentic in what it was relating about what's happening to the planet, what our possibilities are, but also, you know, immediately gave people solutions and helped them implement them. So that would require, I mean, you know, a certain level of, you know, you'd have to use some of the tools that have been used to indoctrinate and control people's minds to move them in a different direction. And, um, you know, similarly, there are things that might have to be done that might seem a little, you know, harsh or quote unquote or Orwellian to prevent mar far worse Orwellian outcomes. So I think, for instance, demanding that leaders, you know, take personality tests and psychopath tests and recognizing that if they, you know, it turns out they don't have the type of empathy for other people. Um, you know, that it's just an idea. I mean, it's good to have some ideas about what we could do. Sure, sure. I mean, what would be fascinating is to have people take the tests and have them have them be published. You know, at the very least. You know, <laughs> um, doesn't mean that you know you fail the test and you can't do something, but at least people would know. Um, it would be an interesting point of discussion for for the electorate. So I want to jump into some ta taboo, unconventional subjects. Do you think, I think we, we can agree that there was a con conspiratorial undertones uh, to 9-11, if not explicit overtones, but do you think that possibly it was itself an initiatory ritual? Have you ever considered that notion? The thing is that, you know, and this is what I talked about in the occult control system in a way, like these things seem too incredibly skillful for humans to be orchestrating. So maybe it's not humans that are orchestrating it. Maybe there are hyper-intelligent and also uh, malevolent, in terms of our existence, uh, entities that are you know behind the scenes. And so, yeah, maybe something like Freemasonry or the, you know, the Illuminati or Skull and Bones uh, or the Bremen Grove, you know, they're doing these phony rituals where they get drunk and they worship an owl or they, you know, pee on Geronimo's skull or something. Maybe, you know, they don't even know, but, but in these subconscious states, they are actually making alliances with, with darker entities that Steiner would talk about as, you know, aromonic or, or even, you know, satanic, if you want to go that, that deep. So, yeah, so, so then these, you know, the, you know, orchestrated events, you know, are not really orchestrated by humans. It feels more like a staged it's like a spectacular puppet show that's being orchestrated from behind the scenes by the beings that Gnostics call archons, but you can give all sorts of names to. Right. I mean, that gets to my next sort of question. Then that gets to our next sort of answer. Okay, my friend. <laughs> I mean, are do you think we're in a matrix? Actually, there's a very nice little video called The Ten Dimensions of Space-Time Explained. And, you know, we are in, I guess, the fourth dimension. So, you know, just as a being in the, you know, um, you know, second dimension, you know, doesn't really, can't really experience space, but, you know, an object could cross the second dimension, you know, as like a dot turning into a circle, turning into a circle, into a bigger circle. You know, we, we're, we're in the fourth dimension, so we experience like fifth dimensional objects, like ideas, kind of pass through our realm, like, like third dimensional objects pass through second dimensional space. You know, then there's fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth dimension. So in those other dimensions, you know, if there are forms of sort of coherent uh, intelligence uh, or consciousness, 
that are able to exist in those higher dimensions, they actually have the capacity to move through time as we move through space. So yeah, it is, it is kind of a matrix, but underlying it is um, the tenth dimension, which as this little video talks about, that would be the underlying loom of uh, the vibratory superstrings that are that are vibrating in all ten dimensions at once and creating this whole loom, this whole illusion of Maya or, or reality. And in fact, there's one psychedelic, 5-MeO-DMT, sometimes known as Bufo, sometimes known as Sapo. One of the main sources of it is a toad in the Sonoran Desert that you scrape off the secretions. And uh, when you smoke the 5-MeO-DMT, I think you basically have an experience of like nirvana or uh, non-duality or this kind of underlying 10-dimensional boom of the superstrings that are, that are oscillating you know, in all these dimensions. So it's an ecstatic uh, bliss experience, except there's no you to experience it. It's just experience. Then you kind of come back into your own uh, egoic identity. So I guess that's what I think. Okay. You've just now talked a, a little bit about people getting drunk in the forest. I tend to think that there is something peculiar going on in among sort of the Anglo-Saxon establishment in the United States and off off-planet groups that's that's a simple version but what do what do, do you have a a thesis on extraterrestrial life and maybe their participation in our lives at at a macro level i mean i wrote about the crop circles in my 2012 book there's like 100 pages of them i definitely think that they're um you know a communication from other forms of intelligence or from maybe us in the future you know, giving us information about the relationship between like ancient uh, spiritual wisdom and mystical knowledge systems and today's understanding of like fractals and technologies and so on. You know, just as we have an ecology of life on Earth, there's no reason there wouldn't be a much bigger ecology of life beyond Earth that would include, and, and life even in other dimensions or whatever life would be consciousness. So uh, I think part of our, you know, if we are going to develop or evolve as a species, you know, that would be learning how to be part of that larger ecology. Because we're in kind of this crude state condition right now, the you know types of entities that are able to more like explicitly reach out to us are you know probably not the ones that are working in our best interests and, and maybe more parasitic, you know like the aliens commonly called the Greys, who don't really seem to have any trace of actually being extraterrestrials. Some people say they're from Zeta Reticula, but they seem to have you know if you look at Richard Dolan's work, uh, UFOs and National Security State, or track all that stuff. I mean, it seems likely that. The military, has, secret military, has had a long understanding that these intruders exist. They may have even met them and made deals with them, exchanging uh, technologies for their opportunities to continue to, you know, kind of uh, abduct uh, humans and do experiments and so on. There's this nice Netflix film about this guy Bob Lazar where he goes into, and you know, some people think he's a phony, but actually that'd be pretty convincing, that he actually worked for the U.S. military reverse engineering the propulsion systems of crashed UFOs. And he, you know, goes on to show how they created like an anti-gravity field around them and were able to move through space uh, by manipulating this gravity field. So yeah, I think um, we're just the beginning of an incredible discovery process if we don't drive ourselves to extinction. <laughs> Do you see any meaning in the question of centrism, political policy centrism, the middle road between the left and the right? Or is it, is it kind of a system that's already bankrupt or something else? We're almost past the point of no return ecologically. And I feel a lot of our language 
you know, even talking about capitalism versus communism or socialism, it's like very passe and it's totally out of date. We do have a managed economy. We already have socialism. It's just the socialism in the U.S. is going to the corporations. You got, you know, the financial institutions got bailed out in 2008. They got bailed out. You know, the, the money system is basically a fraud where, you know, the billionaire class is like spooning out financial elite, just spooning out all this, you know, incredible, you know, lucre to themselves and, and screwing everybody else. You know, so I do think we would be better off having a distributed, far more distributed, you know, system around wealth. But essentially, you know, at this point, we would really need all hands on deck. We would need a general realization that we're facing ecological Armageddon that could bring an end to the human experiment on Earth. And therefore, you know, whatever we're doing, if we're not contributing to that, you know, we need to be contributing to it. And, and that would just mean like we would really have to, you know, go into a different mode of, of you know, action. We need to shift from industrial farming to regenerative farming. Even the UN says that in 60 years or less, there won't even be any soil for harvest anymore because we're depleting all the topsoil because it's all, yeah, disintegrating because of the industrial farming. There's a good film called Biggest Little Farm, uh, which follows a couple who take over sort of a despoiled industrial farmland area in California. And you can see in like five years how all the insects come back, all the birds, animals come back, all the, all the greenery comes back. So that essentially we need like a global movement that resettles people back into these more rural environments and then gives them the tools to do the regenerative farming. We also need to do massive amounts of ocean aquaculture, giant kelp farms in the oceans. If we made 8% of the oceans into a kelp farm, that would leach a lot of the CO2 out of the, out of the sea and prevent the coral reefs from collapsing and prevent the plankton from collapsing, which will also bring out about our extinction because they produce... 60% of our oxygen. Yeah, so and to do these massive scaled things, there would have to be collective projects. You would have to create the collective will. You know, you do what you can to not violate individual, you know, kind of uh, freedom. But uh, in some cases, they would have to be kind of mandated projects. And, but even, even a lot of our not, you know, explicitly mandated projects have been pretty mandated. I mean, why have, you know, so many people moved from the countries and cities over the last 200 years, I mean, there were a lot of reasons, but that's where economic opportunity was. Often they were driven, you know, off their lands for various reasons, like in, in South America and Central America. Often um, exploitative uh, loans and credit systems were used to, you know, kind of strip mine uh, developing world economies, you know, forcing people into survival mode and so on. Yeah, so centrism, during, during, you know, doesn't really mean that much to me at this point. I think, I think we have to recognize that this is a managed, you know, society. And that a lot of forces have been driven by the, you know, economic system above all and the political system to construct this current model that we're in. And that we actually have to, you know, redirect those forces. It really doesn't matter what name you give it because we actually just have to accomplish a number of goals. And then to get to those goals, we would just have to figure out, you know, how do we do it? Sometimes you're not in a choice situation. Sometimes it's an emergency and your house is burning down. And, you know, you have to do certain, everybody has to do certain things, you know, like get water, put the fire out and so on. It's like that, that's actually the situation we're in right now. In thinking about centrism and in thinking about economic systems, I see an inevitability of anarcho-syndicalist patterns emerging um, in some sense because society itself might fracture and people will end up in uh, sort of syndicates finding solutions for themselves on their own. Uh, Any thought 
What exactly is anarcho-syndicalism again? The libertarian left. It's a decentralized system of free associations incorporating economic as well as social institutions. The notion that people would engage in organic forms of problem-solving mutual aid. How is it libertarian? Because it's not seeking solutions at a state level. It's seeking more solutions that are decentralized, you know, people creating their own syndicates to solve the problems that the state has generally been responsible for solving. I don't know about anarcho-syndicalism. I mean, of, of political philosophies, the one that I like intuitively, you know, intrinsically is, is anarchism. But I, I think that it requires a high level of self-responsibility and education. I don't think we can go from where we are now with this, you know, hypnotized, indoctrinated mass population to anarchism. I truly hate libertarianism. Uh, I think it's a really repulsive philosophy that is really, you know, mainly about wealthy people wanting to preserve what they've got and, you know, fuck everybody else. I agree. I agree. Yeah. At this point, I'm almost like feeling like we should just accept socialism. You know, I mean, um, it's, become, it's become such a you know negative term. But I think that if society had a different goal, okay, like we need socialism right now so that we can accomplish these collective objectives like the Green New Deal. But even, you know, but how, how do we actually, you know, kind of re-inhabit the earth before it's too late? Uh, but then we're like, okay, we're not, you know, the goal is beyond this. I mean, that's why, you know, what I've come back to in recent talks and in my work is and in the House of News Now book, that actually there needs to be a shift away from materialism, you know, both as a you know scientific worldview, but then also as kind of like the idea that that's like the goal of civilization is to create more material prosperity to kind of a focus on consciousness itself. And this idea that actually what's most interesting about being human is the incredible range of body, mind, states and experiences that we can have. And, th and then that becomes like the new frontier in the same way material exploration, material science, material progress was once the new frontier. Um, we realize that all of that is just a way step to the exploration of our consciousness, whether through you know, meditation practices, altered states, psychedelics, breathwork, uh, yoga, you know, Sufi dancing. If that vision is really about this sort of consciousness exploration, then maybe we get beyond this sort of uh, deadening focus on you know, capitalism sucks or capitalism is great or socialism sucks or socialism is great. You know, we, we, we have to accomplish collective goals as a species or we're just going to be not going to be here for very much longer. And, you know, it may already be too late. Those goals include transition away from in industrial farming, moving to closed loop manufacturing, cradle to cradle manufacturing, composting on a large scale. We have to massively reduce meat consumption. So stuff like that. I know that we are basically out of time. I do have one last question, if that's okay. Why are we out of time? Oh, oh I did. Oh, I, I thought you said you about yeah, an hour. Yeah, no, okay. If you want to go a little bit longer, that's fine. Okay, great. Well, um, I skipped some questions along the way. The little bit of Jung that I've read has impacted me a great deal. Jung said that we go back into the shadow multiple times across our life. And in going into the shadow, we bring light into that and we... We are trying to sort of resuscitate pieces of ourselves. Really, the transmogrification process. To what extent do you think COVID feels like a transmogrification right for the planet itself? Uh, I mean, COVID is one of those things that seem totally impossible. But then, yeah, now that it's happening, it feels like weirdly kind of inevitable in some, some strange way. 
like we're just in it. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I'm living in Tulum. We're basically, you know, almost everything is outdoors. People are not really being paranoid. And I haven't seen like a high transmission rate. Or I've seen some people getting it in waves, but nobody's had like a really strong negative experience to it, maybe because they're mostly healthy and so on. Yeah, there are many things going on simultaneously with, with, with obviously with COVID and also how useful it is, you know, for the sort of technocratic transhuman agenda. I mean, now they're rushing these vaccines and they'll try to mandate them, you know, but these vaccines are totally uh, experimental. They're working on like RNA, you know, are they changing our genetic structure? Like, what are we getting ourselves into? You know, where's the, where's the civil society oversight board? Uh, these pharmaceutical companies that like Merck that are making these vaccines, you know, ha- have been very destructive companies. Merck had a headache drug called Vioxx, which they knew was fatal. And yet they put it out because they did the, the, you know, the, the financial modeling and they knew that they would make more money even if it killed a lot of people. So it killed like 500,000 people in the U.S., according to was it the magazine Lancet, I think, it's in the conspiracy book. You know, but they didn't give a fuck. So, you know, for, for a big pharmaceutical company, you know, even if people get a lot of chronic conditions from a vaccine or something, that's for their benefit. Like if you have ADAD and asthma and Asperger's, you know, you're going to be taking drugs for your whole life. So I think there is legitimate reason to be uh, suspicious. And then also the question is whether COVID was like accidentally released or intentionally released. I think there's, you know, no doubt that it was manufactured in a lab. The woman who ran the lab in Wuhan was called Bat Lady and had spent 20 years taking coronaviruses from bats and adding elements from other human diseases like SARS or HIV to them to make them more communicable to humans. It was called gain-of-function research, and she'd gotten $7 million from the U.S. military at one point, even though a number of leading virologists had said, this is a terrible idea to keep doing this. It's only creating a non-natural risk. Why are you doing this? It seems like it's the beginning of you know, a new situation where things are going to go you know, more crazy rather than less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy stuff. So one this one question I skipped over has to do going back to a little bit of a, kind of a section I, I call technology and totalitarianism. I don't know if you've seen the film, The Social Dilemma, which I have very mixed feelings about. Uh, have you seen that movie? It's on Netflix. Yeah. I think Jaron Lanier is the highlight of the film. And there's a lot of characters in there that I find, uh, I just find it hilarious that they're pointing at the, their finger at this issue years after they made so much money in the field. Jaron Lanier, if I'm saying his name correctly, he says in the, he says, the product of social media is its gradual and slight imperceptible change in our own behavior and perception. You know, that's what's being bought and sold. I mean, some people say that that we as individuals are the product being bought and sold in social media. But he goes a little further and he says, well, no, it's it's the shift in our consciousness. And this is also sort of in line with um, Herbert Marcuse's concepts of totalitarianism. And, and you talk about that. It comes into some writing that I did in the past. And I guess my question is, I don't see a solution out of that problem other than ceremony and psychedelics. I have never done psychedelics. I probably won't do psychedelics. I hope someday to get back to ceremony because ceremony are some of the best years of my life were spent at the sweat lodge. But, um, but that's a whole nother question. The point is you, 
you you know these matters and I don't think there's a solution and I'm wondering what you think I don't think there's a way out of these sort of structures that sit that try to sit above us and impact us other than to to shock something out of our own system through ceremony or through psychedelics uh yeah I mean I mean I have a little bit more of a flexible view. I mean, before you were saying you know, the inevitability of totalitarianism, it was like, well, it's likely, maybe even highly likely, but it's not inevitable because there could be an uprising or revulsion against it. Um, you know, similarly, you know, it, it totally would be possible to design and, and create, you know, social networks that are extremely beneficial and um, are not parasitic or predatory uh, in how they capture our attention or our information. And they could actually be tools for like profound systemic change uh, uh, in a short period of time. Ironically, we're almost lucky that we're facing this ecological catastrophe because if we weren't, it really might be that we just go into you know the permanent mode of distraction and, and you know social media and then technocratic control and so on. But nature is kind of like has other, has another plan for us, you know. You know, the history of technology is that every time there's a new technology, we, we gain some capacities and we lose other capacities. You know, Socrates never became a writer or reader because he felt that literacy destroyed memory. You know, and he was correct. You know, when, you know, in ancient cultures, people used to rem be forced to remember the, the sagas, the myths of their tribe, the songs. They, they, they had huge memories compared to us. You know, so, social media is destroying some of our capacities. Yet it's also augmenting them at the same time. You know, we're able to process a huge amount of information with lightning speed. We're, we're, you know, used to being interconnected with so many people continuously. So, um, yeah, you know, some good and some bad. This might be a good final question. Something I think about is the failure of the intellectual and the failure of the expert. You use the, the term reductive. I often use the term linear as the, the way in which they think. Um, can he or she do anything about that, or will it require an external shock to see a shift in their methods and perspectives? You know, is the academy going to recover, so to speak, or is it simply playing the role it should play? But or, or is it going to sort of grow? No, I mean, I think uh, I mean, I really, I mean, how soon is now? I really got into the work of Buckminster Fuller. He remains like really, I mean, he's a great, you know, you know, meta thinker, systems thinker, synthesis. And he talked about how, um, you know, essentially the, you know, the, the way the academy and the university system developed, you know, was to support a certain type of, you know, exploitative, you know, capitalist, you know, agenda, and it led to like hyper specialization, uh, which, which, you know, is really useful for the, um, you know, the, the dominant class, because you know, if somebody specializing in like 18th century romantic literature, or like one sequence of, you know, the 38th gene, gene on a you know, uh, electric eel or something, you know, they're not stepping back to have a general perspective on how everything fits together. They're, they're lost in the minutiae. Then you have academic institutions like self-perpetuate. So then you have like, you know, meetings of all the people who are interested, you know, whose whole lives are focused on 18th century romantic poetry from, you know, 1820 to 1822. And they all write papers. They congratulate themselves on this this hyper-specialization keeps people from zooming out and getting the systemic uh, worldview and then being being able to operate from a coherent point of view. I mean, Buckminster Fuller felt that our best feature as humans was that we're, we're by innately comprehensive generalists who can learn anything. 
So he, his ideas were really important for me when I wrote How Soon Is Now because I felt, yeah, I just felt like um, there needed to be a systemic overview of how you would, you know, put you know, human civilization kind of back together in a way that would allow for, you know, the sort of regeneration, regeneration of, of the Earth's ecology. So, yes, yeah, so that's my perspective on that. Okay. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate all of this. This is great. This is great. This are, as I was listening to you, I think about you as the kind of like this. I mean, you have, you, you've achieved a lot, you know, but just a highly underutilized quantity in, in the public sort of sphere and particularly in the public policy sphere and someone who I, I have thought about Fuller and Terrence McKenna. And these are sort of people who you kind of stand on their shoulders and they're very unique thinkers. And we're still responding to what they shared. And you, you kind of come from that legacy. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's great to talk to you. Cool, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Have a great day. Okay, buddy. Have a good day. Thanks a lot for joining me. All songs were by Giovanni Bruno. In order of appearance, Modern Chords, Conquest, and Progresso. I found him on Pixaday.com. Again, if you'd like to make a donation, you can go to option3project.org. And the three is a number. And that is also uh, option3project is the handle on all channels, Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, etc. And of course, please uh, like and subscribe on all the channels. I really appreciate it. If there's particular content you'd like to see, subjects you'd like to have addressed, you can also email me at option3project at gmail. I really appreciate you joining and come back, come back next time. Have a great day.